Our scripture passage for this morning's sermon is 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. And if you didn't bring a Bible or you um, typically use the Pew Bible, you will find this passage on page 1016. So please do take out your Bible, the Pew Bible. If you use an app on your smartphone, you have the ESV app, which is the translation we use. Uh, Take it out, turn to 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. We're nearing the end of this sermon series uh, called Glory and Grace. It's a sermon series about the church and for the church. And I want to remind you that the aim, the purpose of this series is to explain and unpack our mission statement, but not really just our mission statement because we've done that, but how we're going to accomplish our mission statement according to scripture. Our mission statement is we glorify God by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and treasuring Christ above all. And so we did a series on the mission statement, expounding each of those elements to the mission statement. And then uh, we, we went through scripture, books of the Bible, and then uh, we realized we need to, as a church, go through how we're going to do this, our vision for accomplishing this mission. And so we've covered things like gospel community, corporate worship, baptism, the Lord's Supper, membership, and church discipline, and how they play a role in us accomplishing our mission. And this morning's focus is on church leadership. With the final two sermons, uh, we'll be addressing missions, which are a big part of how we're going to accomplish our mission. Uh, Missions both here and uh, outside of the United States. And uh, I'm encouraged and excited because providentially, we're going to be having uh, one of our missionaries, David Hartman, visiting us. Uh, He and his wife and their five children uh, are serving in Brazil, seeking to bring the gospel and plant a church among the Yanomami people in Brazil. Uh, But they'll be uh, on a short furlough uh, with us. And so uh, David Hartman will be preaching next week's sermon on missions. Uh, With that, would you please now, if you're able to, stand for the reading of God's word, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. We long for more of you. We want to worship you together this morning. Father in heaven, we are so amazed that though you need nothing, though you would be just fine without us, you were God before you made us, you will always be God, you need nothing. You have created us in your image. And though we have rebelled as a race, went our own way, and not only as a race, but as individuals, we went our own way. We love the things of this world. We, we have sinned in word, thought, and deed. You sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and to live a perfect, sinless life and to die a sinner's death. And you raised him from the dead so that we would be forgiven of our sins if we trust in him. We turn from our sins and trust in him. 
we would be born again by the power of your spirit and we would be in fellowship with you, the triune living God. How sweet and how glorious this news is. I pray this morning, Father, that even as we come to worship you and and treasure Christ together, that you would be opening our eyes to see you more and better, to see you clearer as the God of the Bible who, who reigns and rules over all. Father, even though we Christians have been born again by your Spirit, even though you have declared us righteous because of the finished work of Christ, we continue to struggle with sin. And so we acknowledge that this morning. We confess that we are sinners. We remain sinful even after you declare us righteous because of Christ's finished work. And we simply and solely trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We confess our sins and we, con- we confess that Christ is our Savior. Lord, this morning we pray that your word would enlighten, that it would awaken, that it would encourage, that it would strengthen the weak in heart, the weak in faith, that you would use your word by your spirit to minister to hearts and to minds, to change minds, to confront sin, to expose areas that need to be addressed by your word. And even as we focus in on church leadership and what your word teaches about it, may you do great works in applying this passage to our hearts this morning. Father, we lift up those among us who are suffering, who are grieving, who have experienced great loss, whether it be the the death of a loved one, um, difficult news, the loss of of a career or a job, uh, just feeling discouraged and frustrated and, and distant from you, that you would be at work this morning reminding your people of your love, your great love for them in Christ, that you would sustain and strengthen them that we would grieve well with those who are grieving, not skipping over the, the heart issues that need to be addressed and, and work through, but, but at the same time willing to, to point our brothers and sisters to Christ, the, the risen Christ who, who is our only hope in this life and in the next. We also rejoice and praise you for the many good gifts, uh, the, the, the young children that have been born and and the, the moms that are expecting that are among this congregation. And we pray for them that they would be healthy and strong, that Jesus would be their greatest treasure. We recognize that everything good that we experience in this life, everything good that we experience comes from you, the giver of every good gift. Lord, we pray for our nation as many of us are uh, continually wrestling with the reality that so many unborn children have been murdered in the womb in this country. Uh, Help us to be winsome and loving as we engage in conversations with people who disagree with us. I pray that you would open the eyes of those who are blind, blind to the greatness and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, blind to the reality of what's going on in the womb when uh, a child is is growing and... and, um, and that you would, we, we don't want you, Father. We don't want the wrath that they deserve to be poured out on them. We want them to repent and to turn to you and to trust in Christ. And so we pray that you would help us to lead with the gospel, to be bold and courageous and loving and winsome with those who, who don't believe that what, what is happening in a, in a mother's womb is, is life, human life. Uh, we pray, Father, open the eyes of politicians, of, of voters, and change the laws in this country and throughout the world. Father, as we make our way through this text, we need your help. Uh, Humble us, shape us, make us more like your son. Strengthen this church so that we do the things that you've called us to do in your word together for your glory and our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, church, we don't have to look long or very hard to find examples within the Bible, as well as throughout church history, especially modern church history, uh, to, to find examples that prove just how important it is to have godly, faithful, and qualified leaders leading God's people. Every time a pastor or a church leader commits adultery, embezzles money, fleecing God's people, or abuses those under their care, great harm is done to Christ's church, Christ's reputation, and the church's gospel witness in the world. In light of the damage that can be done by ungodly, corrupt, and unqualified church leaders, church leadership is always a great priority in Christ's church. It is always to be important for us to, to consider and talk about and understand church leadership. But church leadership is equally important for another reason. If we're going to accomplish the mission of this church, the mission that is right above those center sanctuary doors before you come in, and again, we're not trying to be clever or extra cool or hip with that mission statement. We simply believe it summarizes what the Bible says, and it engages our hearts. If we're really, truly going to accomplish the mission to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and treasuring Christ above all, well, then we need godly leaders leading us. Thankfully, God has not left it up to us to determine who is qualified to lead in Christ's church and how they are to lead. I'm a big proponent of reading really, really good books. Books that are drenching with scripture. Dripping, I guess is the better word. Dripping with scripture. I'm not against reading really, really good books. Uh, I also believe we can learn a lot from secular authors, practical wisdom about leadership and all that good stuff. I'm not a, against the reading of those books, but here's the thing. The Bible is very clear about church leadership in the church. And so we don't need any other books, so they might help us because God's word addresses these things. And one of the passages in which God's word addresses these things, church leadership, is our passage this morning, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. Now the focus in this passage is on church elders. What Peter says to the elders is important for everyone in Christ's church to understand. We all need to know what an elder is and what an elder is to be doing and how they are to do it. And so much of what Peter says to the elders in this passage strictly will be applied to the elders. However, I believe that there is still much that we can gain from this passage, even if we're not an elder or leader in the church. So even if you're not an elder, if you're a community group or Bible study leader, if you're a Sunday school teacher, a deacon, a member of the church staff, or a church member in this church, whoever you are, I believe there's much for you to apply to your own life and to whatever God has given you as a role in your life for his glory. And so I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will help make some of those extra applications in your own life as you hear the preaching of God's word. I'll make some, but, but I'm confident there's much here for everyone in this passage and not just for the elders. In scripture, the word elder, overseer, and when used in the context of church leadership, the word shepherd, all refer, all three of these words refer to the same church leadership position. The word pastor comes from a Latin word, which means to shepherd. So pastor means to shepherd. Each of these words, shepherd or pastor, elder and overseer, are used interchangeably in scripture. With the words pastor or shepherd and the word overseer often describing the function of an elder, what they are to be doing, and the word elder being used to describe the title of the office. So it's the title, elder, and then shepherd and overseer really is describing the function of the same position, the same man who's leading in Christ's church. 
we find forms of all three words being used this way in 1 Peter 5. Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd or pastor the flock of God by exercising oversight, that is, by overseeing. In many Protestant evangelical churches, it's, it's common to, to call the lay or the unpaid pastors elders and to call the staff or the paid elders pastors. However, whether they are paid or unpaid, part-time or full-time, according to the Bible, an elder is a pastor and a pastor is an elder. So both words refer to the same office. So you might come from a background where only the, the, the paid staff uh, elder is called pastor, and you call them pastor, and most of us don't call people elder if they're an elder in this church and say elder, rich, parfree. Uh, but, but this is a cultural thing. Whenever you hear the word elder or pastor in this church, you should understand that we view them as synonymous. They describe the same church leadership position. And I think many of you are familiar with this truth, this, this belief, this understanding. We've taught it before. It's come through in other sermons, but it's always good to remember these things. Scripture also teaches the importance of a plurality among the elders, that despite different gifting and skills and abilities, multiple pastors or elders are to lead a local church together. Now, there's going to be situations, especially in church planning situations, where there might just be one pastor or elder, but eventually, as the church matures and grows and, and either other believers come and join that church plant uh, or uh, elders are trained and prepared, there, there should be a plurality among elders, multiple elders. And what this means practically for us as a church is that though some elders like the pastor of preaching and vision, that's me, and the pastor of music, that's Drew, and when we hire him, the pastor of discipleship and implementation will be more visible and more available to the church because they are full-time staff elders. At Woodridge, all elders have equal authority, and together we lead the church. Now, this can be difficult at times because rather than just one person making every final decision, we as elders work together. I believe it's healthy, though. It can slow things down. It took us a long time to come up with that mission statement. <laughs> Some people are like, hey, what's the mission statement? I'm like, I think we're close, but we elders need to pray more and work through it and make sure this is what is a good summary of what the mission of the church is. And it's so healthy because it guards against one person running the church because we want Jesus to run this church. And by having a plurality, we, we, we allow that to happen in a more healthy and better way. It does at times slow things down. It, it requires more meetings and conversations, uh, but it's healthy and it's good. With this in mind, we come to 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, where God says much about the elder's work, the elder's heart, and the elder's reward. That's what will be much of the focus this morning, the elder's work, the elder's heart, and the elder's reward. But it also closes with, with what should be the relationship between the elders and the church members in a church. And so we begin with the elder's work. Peter tells us in verse 2 what elders are to be doing exhorting the elders of the persecuted churches in Asia Minor, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock. So elders are called by God to shepherd God's flock. And part of shepherding will entail exercising oversight over the members of the church, those that are under their care. The main illustration Peter uses throughout this passage and the one that is used in so many other passages to describe the work of the New Testament elder is that of a shepherd with his sheep. 
It's difficult to overemphasize. I'm sure it can be done, but it's difficult to overemphasize the importance of this biblical illustration when it comes to godly leadership in God's church. We, we can even find it in the Old Testament in one of the most well-known and beloved of the Psalms, Psalm 23, which begins in verse 1 with, The Lord is my shepherd. And continues with David using the shepherd-sheep relationship to describe the relationship that God has with his people. In John 10, Jesus uses the same metaphor of a, of a shepherd and his sheep to describe himself and his people, saying in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then Jesus returns to the shepherd and sheep metaphor when after he had laid down his life for the sheep. So he went to the cross. He dies on the cross to atone for our sins. After that, he's raised from the dead. But prior to his ascension, he is, he is on earth and he's teaching and he's appearing and he's making it clear he has been raised bodily. And during that time, prior to his ascension, he gives these important instructions to Peter regarding his church in John 21, verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So here, having been raised from the dead, paid for our sins, redeemed a people for his own namesake, giving these instructions to Peter, some of the final instructions that he gives to his disciples, Peter, an apostle, one of the foundations of the New Testament church, is given the same biblical metaphor of a shepherd with his sheep. And Jesus says, okay, if, if you love me, then you care for my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take care of my people, my sheep. We even see the Apostle Paul drawing from the shepherd and sheep metaphor as well when he gives this warning in his farewell message to the Ephesian elders. These are his final words to the Ephesian elders. He's going to leave them. He's prepared them. He's trained them. He, he knows it's going to be difficult. These are his final words, and he uses this shepherd and sheep metaphor in them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so the illustration of a shepherd with his sheep is so important when it comes to leadership in church in general, all of us are to do some shepherding. It's part of discipleship, and discipleship is a church effort. And yet, it's, it's particularly important when it comes to the work of elders because it paints this powerful, pictures, this powerful picture of what an elder is supposed to do. They're supposed to shepherd. Look at that passage. You know, I, I think about some common misconceptions about what a pastor does. Then read Acts 20. Paul says, people are coming, and not just from out there, but from in here, and they're going to come from within the elders. 
There's going to be false teachers that are wolves in sheep's clothing. That are, they're, going to, they're going to seek to devour and steal away God's people. And you faithful, godly, qualified elders are to guard them. You're to protect them. You're to be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That's a shepherd right there. Paul shepherding the elders, caring for the elders, showing them what it's like to be an elder as an apostle, admonishing them, teaching them how to care for God's precious sheep. And so elders are called to be under shepherds of God's flock, caretakers of Jesus' precious sheep that he died to purchase and redeem and free. Like shepherds, New Testament elders are to feed and lead and protect those that God has placed under their care. But instead of using a shepherd's staff, elders are to do their shepherding with God's word. And elders who know and can teach God's word are able to do this. And that's the priority in, in an elder, that they know God's word and they can teach God's word. They're not afraid of doctrine or theology. They, they, they dig into it. They love God's truth. Theology, the study of God, they love God and they love studying his word. And they can do this shepherding without a staff, but with God's word because 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is true. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Having the shepherd and, and sheep, the, the shepherding metaphor in mind and looking at that passage, thinking about it. You know, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, complete and equipped. And this is the work of an elder, a pastor, a shepherd. They're training and correcting and reproving those who are God's people under their care. And so church, it's important that we remember that the shepherding work God calls elders and pastors to do in Christ's church is word-centered work. That, that's what they're doing. They're, they're doing word ministry. That's, they're, they're focused on the ministry of the word, preaching the word, not just from the pulpit, but in the commons, in community groups, in, in your home, in prayer. They're, they're proclaimers of God's word, of God's gospel. And so pastors are not to be entertainers. I know that that's become very common now. I, I've, I've talked with Christians and they say, oh man, that, that, that pastor is, is such an entertainer. He's so engaging. And then I ask them, what did you learn about Jesus in the sermon? Oh, nothing really. I can't remember. But I heard three steps to my best life or how I can be a, a better this or a better that. And I also remember two really funny stories from his life. That's not a pastor. That's an entertainer. You might as well be going to a show and, and paying for a ticket. That's not what God calls shepherds to be doing. And, and, sh and shepherds are not to be comedians. Now, I know that sometimes I accidentally make people laugh. All right? It's an accident. And you're welcome to laugh if you think something's funny. All right? That, that, that's not my intent, though, is to make you laugh, to kind of loosen you up so you just listen a little bit better and, and smile at me when I'm preaching. That, that's not a pastor. A pastor's aim is not to, to humor people. We're talking about serious business, the, the, the work of God in humanity for his own glory. We're talking about the gospel, the, the only gospel that can save people. We're talking about life and death, hell and heaven. We're talking about the most important things. And so a laugh here and there is fine. If I accidentally make you laugh, it's not my intent, but laugh. You can laugh at me. I don't care. It's fine. But that's not the goal of a pastor, to make people laugh, to entertain them, to kind of take their mind off the cares of this world. No, it's to, to focus on what God has for them. Pastors are not to be CEOs. 
simply spiritual advisors like Oprah or, or um, Eckhart Tolle or whatever, whoever the, the new and cool spiritual advisor is in the world. They're not to be celebrities. Now, some pastors are celebrities, and some of those celebrity pastors are really good pastors. God has gifted them with the ability not to, to, to be consumed with pride. But many of the celebrity pastors are, are, are off. They're, they're too busy trying to be a celebrity and famous that they're not shepherding their own church. I think probably uh, we'll find out this out in heaven, but the, the, the greatest, some of the greatest and most faithful and, and godly pastors, nobody will know until they get to heaven. Because they pastor churches of 20 people in Africa or 50 people in Latin America or somewhere, somewhere in Afghanistan. And we'll be amazed. Instead of quoting Spurgeon and Calvin and whoever else at the time, we'll be quoting some guy that we haven't even heard at this side of heaven saying, wow, thank you for that wonderful truth about Jesus. And you know what? Here's another important thing. Pastors are not to be everyone in the church's best friends. I like friendship. I like being friends with people. But that's not the calling of a pastor. It's to be a shepherd of God's sheep. So pastors are to be teachers of God's word, committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, to telling the church and the world over and over and over again about the life, the death, the resurrection, and the triumphant return of Jesus Christ, and calling all to repent of their sin and to trust in him. That's what pastors are to be about. That's what pastors are to be doing. And so maybe you're not a member of this church, you're a member of another church, or you're not a member of any church, or you're still discerning where you should become a member and commit to a local church. Look for pastors who do this thing, these things. I, I, it doesn't have to be here. It, it can be anywhere. Wherever you go, is the pastor preaching God's word? Are they pointing me to Christ? Is the gospel every single week in song, in prayer, in, in the preaching, is it there? Is, it, is, is the, the, the church growing in Christ-likeness because they're being fed God's word? The great Puritan theologian and defender of the gospel, John Owen, said, the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. That's the duty. That's the first and principal duty of the pastor. Preach the word. He goes on to say, he is no pastor who doth not feed his flock. It's not a pastor. That's a, an entertainer, a comedian, a CEO, not a pastor. And this brings us to the second part of verse 2 and verse 3. Here Peter tells Tells, that el tells us that elders are to shepherd God's flock, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have them, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in their charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, if we turn to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we find these lists of qualifications that Paul gives to the church. And this list in the, these lists include that a man who is being considered for the office of elder, and we make no uh, qualms about this. We, we don't feel like we have to defend it because the Bible clearly teaches it. We believe that elders, that pastors, are to be men. Not because men are better or smarter or anything like that. Men and women are of equal worth before God, but because God designed it this way. And God's design is good. And so if God designed it, said it's good, and has given these unique roles to men and women in the church and in the home, then if we set them aside because the culture, and even some Christians say that's backward and that's silly and that's whatever it is, chauvinistic, then, then we've got a problem with God because he made it this way, and it's good. And when we do these things rightly for God's glory, then the world sees God's good creation and how things are supposed to function in his kingdom. So these men, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, must be above reproach. 
the husband of one wife. So if they're married, they can be single, but if they're married, they're committed to one woman. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. He must not be a recent convert. He must be well thought of by outsiders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's, that, that last part from Titus is, is, is something that I want to have before you this morning. This is what pastors and elders are to be doing. There's a lot of misunderstandings about what they're to be doing. This is what it is. They are to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, giving instruction in sound doctrine. We talk a lot about theology and doctrine here. And that's because the Bible says that's what elders and pastors should be doing, teaching, instructing sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We do address false teachers. We do encourage our, our we, we don't have a list of banned uh, authors. We, 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 we're not going to do that. But when I hear about somebody reading a, a book that is garbage, that has prosperity or is missing the gospel or denies the reality of sanctification and the need to be growing in grace in Christ and, and fighting the good fight or whatever it might be, as a pastor, it's my duty to address that with love and grace and kindness. So this isn't Fahrenheit 451. We're not going to be burning books or anything like that. You can read whatever book you want, but if, if you're a Christian under our care as elders, we hear about you reading some heretical work or going to see a movie that's based on a heretical book. Well, we're going to be concerned. And it's our job to shepherd. It's not domineering or, or controlling by any means. It's us warning and saying, hey, do you know what, what the theology is behind that book? You, might, you know? Okay, good. You know that? that we, we need to speak up and speak into these things if we're going to be faithful shepherds. So there's these lists in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, but, but what Peter says in these verses, though it fits with these qualifications, is really, a, is really a focus on the elder's heart. So he doesn't give us these qualifications, but he says this is what an elder's heart should be. This is what is to motivate and to drive the elder. And there are three statements. Each is made up of a negative that describes how an elder is not to shepherd, and then a positive that describes how an elder is to shepherd God's flock. I believe all three of these statements can be applied in various ways and degrees to all leaders in Christ church. To all Christians, to some degree, uh, the, the, there can be application from these three statements. So, so especially now, if you, you've been kind of tuning me out, I hope you haven't been, but if you've been tuning me out, you're like, what's here for me? It's, it's all here for you. You need to know these things. But, but these three statements will help anybody grow in Christ-likeness and serve Christ and his church better. First, elders are to shepherd not under compulsion, but willingly. Not under compulsion, but willingly. God doesn't desire men to serve as elders who have to be forced into serving, who are reluctant and unwilling shepherds. If a man has to be constantly pushed into the role of an elder, he may need to be encouraged, and, and, and the church needs to identify and say, hey, we think you're, you're a possible elder in the church. But if his wife is behind him saying, you, you, you need to do this. You can't buy the boat if you don't serve as an elder. You can't go on the trip unless you step up and become an elder and, and put your name in the, hat, in the ring or whatever it is. I'm so bad at those phrases and on the spot. I don't even know why I try. Uh, but, but an elder must not be somebody who's forced into serving. A man who serves under compulsion, you know what happens? They become lazy. They're not interested in doing the work. They become a grumbler and a complainer. 
every meeting that they have to go to, every call that they have to make, every email that they have to send, every time they have to preach or teach a class, it's like, uh-huh, again? When is this going to be over? He's going to be a discouragement to the other elders that he's called to serve with. He's going to be a discouragement to the members that he's called to shepherd. And he's going to end up discouraging other men in the church from desiring to serve as an elder. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that to desire to be an elder is a noble task. And so we don't want any grumblers and complainers and, and men who are forced into serving. There's something very, very sad about a lazy, complaining, grumbling elder or pastor. And I've met some of them. I don't want to hang out with them. I don't want to be around them. <laughs> you can Google um, angry pastor, and these videos will pop up, and a friend showed me a couple, where the pastor's just up there basically like calling people out by name in the church and yelling at people. These grumpy, a lot of times they're these old grumpy men that are just screaming and yelling at people. They're not preaching the word. They All of a sudden they're going through their outline, and all of a sudden somebody makes a noise, and they're like, hey, yo, what are you doing? You know, it's crazy, and people keep on going. These churches, like, there's a bunch of people. I'm like, are you kidding me? How can you deal with that grumpy, complaining, lazy man? Was called a shepherd and, and care for God's people. When I meet grumpy, complaining, lazy pastors, I encourage them to step out. Not from the room, from the ministry. Now, it's not that elders always have to have a smile on their face and, and a skip in their step and be humming hymns all the time. That, that's not the, the reality. It's hard. At times, it's hard to be an elder. But elders are to be men so amazed by the gospel that they want to serve. They're compelled to serve. Imperfect but qualified men committed to their Lord and to his people. And they need to be like this. They need to have this heart so that when things get tough, and they will, when sheep begin to wander, and they will, when conflict happens, and it will, when the church is struggling, that elder doesn't lose heart or focus on the gospel, loses focus on the gospel, and he remains faithful to God and the people that he's been called to care for and shepherd. And so he's got to be willing. He, he, he's got to be committed to the ministry, even when it gets hard. We need elders and church leaders who are committed to following Paul's instructions to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now, some have made an argument, hey, this isn't directly to a pastor. I, I believe this applies to a pastor and elder. Timothy was serving as, uh, as a pastor in Ephesus. When, when Paul wrote these things, he was called to establish and strengthen the church by establishing the eldership. And so I believe these apply. And verse 2 I've taken, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, I've, they're basically my, if I had a pastor verse, these are the verses. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I do believe, church, that this passage is a, a good description of the type of work elders and pastors are to be doing. They must be preachers of the word first and foremost, committed to proclaiming the gospel, ready in season and out of season to use the word to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort God's people. 
Let's remember that. That's what elders and pastors are to do. So if one of us comes and approaches you and says, hey, we're concerned about where you're at with Christ. We're concerned about your, your pursuit of the worldly things. We haven't seen you at church for a while. You know, what's going on? They're doing their job. They're doing what, but what the church has, has called elders to do because the Bible teaches that elders should be doing these things. Of course, with patience and teaching God's word. For a man to do these things, he must be a willing servant, not a forced laborer, so motivated by the glory and the greatness of Christ and love for God's people that he does not give up even when the sheep that he's shepherding rebuff or oppose him. A man sustained by God's grace who trusts the Lord so that he can endure the inevitable suffering that will come in doing faithful pastoral ministry. Now, it's not all suffering. I've been, if you count my um, shepherding of youth days, I've been a pastor now for... uh, about 13 years. There's a lot of awesome stuff, glorious things. I would never trade it up for anything. I don't want to be anything else but a pastor. But there are days that are very difficult, and there are seasons that are, are, are very difficult. And so whoever is serving, whichever man is called to serve in this church or in another church as an elder, as, an, a pastor, as, a, as a pastor, he must be sustained by God's grace. He must not serve out of duty, but because he delights in God, Faithful gospel ministry requires that a man's heart treasures Christ above all. Second, elders are to shepherd, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, that the elders the church calls to minister full-time in the word should be financially supported. They should be cared for financially by the church. But that's a far cry from pastors living the high life. Money must not be the driving force for an elder who shepherds Christ's people. This is another reason why the prosperity gospel is such garbage. Because the successful prosperity gospel preacher, you know what? They're living the high life. The message has been believed and and followed by those who are under his care. And air quotes for those who might listen later on. Air quotes is real there. The focus in prosperity church is is on money, not on Christ. Especially on giving the church money. More, more air quotes there, church. The business owners, I mean prosperity preachers, who preach that false gospel are doing what they do for shameful gain. And yet it happens in non-prosperity preaching churches as well. Pastors who make more money than pretty much everybody in the congregation. Pastors who, who demand crazy things. I've heard of a pastor who demanded that he have his own personal bathroom in his own office. If I ever do that, confront me. Confront me. All right, pastors who, who require ex- crazy amounts of money because they have book deals and all these things. They're off writing all these books. Now, some of them can do it, and they do it well. And they use the money that they make to further the gospel and to plant more churches. But elders and pastors are not to be in the ministry for the money. Godly, faithful, qualified elders will shepherd not because they want your money, but because they love you and they want you to know and they want you to grow in Christ. Elders are to teach and believe that money, they're to model this, that money is not the greatest treasure, but that money is given to us by God so that we can show that Jesus is the greatest treasure. It's not wrong for a pastor to be financially cared for, but it is wrong for a pastor to see pastoral ministry as a means to get rich. And again, most churches can't make their pastor rich, but there are some. And again, that pastor should quickly step out of the ministry and do something else if that's the case. If he sees the pastorate as the eldership as a means to to be rich, to make his money. 
Third, elders are to shepherd, not by domineering, but by being examples to the flock. And the word translated here as domineering in the ESV can also be translated, and is translated in many other translations, as lording over. It means to forcefully gain mastery over others. To domineer is to have an authoritarian attitude. It's to treat church members as subjects to be ruled, not as sheep to be cared for and tended to. Elders who are domineering are all about building their own kingdom, having power and making a name for themselves. They want to be famous and they want people to submit to them. But elders are to lead by being Christ-like examples. They are to be men who know they need Jesus Christ, who love the gospel because they know that apart from God's grace in Christ, they would be hopeless and helpless. They are to be men who serve not for power, but because they have been forever changed by the power of the gospel. It's not about power or their own name if they're a faithful, godly elder. In his book, Biblical Eldership, An Urgent Call to Restore Biblical Church Leadership, Alexander Strauch writes, There is no place for dominating lordly leaders in a family that is to be marked by mutual love, brotherhood, submission, and humility. The elders are not to shepherd the church like little popes or petty tyrants. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10? And Jesus called them, his disciples, to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So elders, again, are not CEOs running a company or dictators running a country. They are shepherds who lead, who feed, who guard, who protect God's precious sheep. They're men whose hearts have bowed to King Jesus, who are committed to serving the King of Kings, who has all authority, and, and who are men who know that the authority that they have been given from Jesus is not for their good, but for the good of others, for the good of the church. And so they use their authority not to domineer over, but to guard, to protect, to lead, to feed God's sheep. All three of the positive statements about the elder's heart, that they are to shepherd willingly, eagerly, and as examples to the flock, they're all true about Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. He willingly gave up his life. He was eager to serve, and he is the greatest example, having come to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. And so el elders are to shepherd for Jesus, and they're to shepherd like Jesus. He's the model. He's the example. What's the good shepherd? Look to the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. That's what elders will do. They will model their ministry after Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. Well, this brings us to verse 4, the elder's reward. Peter says to the elders, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's awesome right there. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to give those who have faithfully served. And I do believe that there's a crown of unfading glory for all who serve faithfully in whatever calling God calls them to. They will receive the unfading crown of glory. Awesome. So elders must not shepherd for shameful gain. They're not to be domineering over God's people. They're to do it willingly. And if they do, they're promised that when Christ returns... Those who are faithful under shepherds will be given this unfading crown of glory by the chief shepherd himself. Just picture that day when 
the faithful pastor in Afghanistan who's maybe even given up his life, literally, for the gospel and for his people. The, the pastor right now in China who, who is, is unwilling to sign a document and, and change his doctrine because uh, it, 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 would, it would lose the gospel, who's, who's in jail the last time I heard. All the faithful elders and pastors throughout church history, past, present, and future, gathering together in the chief shepherd saying, here it is for you, the unfading crown of glory. It's possible to interpret this as a literal crown. It's possible. However, in this context, crown more likely represents just in general a reward or special honor. So I don't think that Jesus is going to give us this literal crown that we put on our head. I don't picture that. I don't think that it's possible, but I don't think so. And the reason that this crown has an unfading quality is that it's made of glory. What does that look like? Made of glory? Where where does glory come from? It comes from God. That's that's glory. Glory, God is glorious. Everything that he is is glorious. Everything that he does is glorious. So this crown is made of, of, of glory. Not gold, not silver, not bronze, not diamonds, not sapphire, whatever, rubies. It's made of glory. Nothing like it. I, I still struggle with the whole reward system in Scripture, and it's there. I don't deny it. It's there. We will be rewarded. Uh, those who, who shepherd well, those who, who, who have been entrusted with much and, and use it for uh, God's purposes, uh, they will be rewarded. It's there. I still struggle with it. And here's why. Because I believe that Jesus will be all satisfying. <laughs> that when we're face-to-face with Jesus in glory, when he returns and we're looking at him, I'm not going to want anything else. I don't want a crown. I got Jesus. However, it's there. And so what is going on in this passage, this unfading crown of glory? Here's what I think. That whatever reward we're given, it's going to help us to enjoy Jesus more. It won't be as if, here's the crown of glory, faithful shepherd. And then the shepherd goes off to the side and says, oh yeah, my precious. Like Schmeagel or Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Yes, don't come over here. I've got my crown of unfading glory. And that, that's not what's going to happen. Somehow, being given this unfading crown of glory and all the, the rewards and the, the blessings that Jesus gives to his people, somehow it's going to help us go, yes, you're awesome, Jesus, even more than we would otherwise. Somehow, I don't get it. I don't know how it's going to happen, but, but it's there in Scripture. So whatever he gives us is going to somehow help us to enjoy him more for all of eternity. That's awesome. And so a day is coming when all motives will be completely known and exposed. It will be clear who is serving out of duty and who is serving out of delight in Christ. Who is serving for the church and who is fleecing the church. Who is in it for the money or the power and who is in it for the glory of God and the good of his people. God will judge it all. So sometimes we think, does, he, does, does anybody see what I'm doing? The, the prayers that I'm making on behalf of others, the sacrifices that I'm making, and I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about all Christians who are faithful to do what God calls them to do. Does anybody see it? Does it make any difference? Yes, somebody sees it. His name is Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. He sees everything, every prayer that you make, every sacrifice, all of it. He sees it, and he will reward you for it. Good and faithful servant. It's worth it. Keep on doing it. Don't stop. The chief shepherd will come and reward his servants, bestowing on them heavenly honor and glory for all of eternity. And so if there's something... Even, even though I wrestle with understanding it, if there's something that Jesus is going to give me so that I can enjoy him more, I want it. It's worth it. Whatever it is, it's worth it. 
because Jesus is worth it. And being able to enjoy him more and more for all of eternity, I want that. And so elders and church leaders, every one of us Christians, we're to keep our focus on Christ and remember his appearing. It's not just this is going to be over, you know, like the, the pain and the suffering. There, there, there's many in our church that they're, they're going through very difficult things, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And they just say, Jesus, come. And that's the reality. We want him to come to end the suffering, but we also want him to come because we want our, our reward that's going to help us enjoy, to enjoy him for all of eternity even more. And so we remember he's appearing. He's going to come and he's going to reward his people. Everything done for Jesus and for his people is worth it. We're storing up treasures in heaven that won't rust or be destroyed. And we will be given a glorious reward. The unfading crown of glory awaits us. Having addressed the elder's work, the elder's heart, and the elder's reward, our passage this morning closes with instructions for the entire church. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, if you're an older Christian... So if you're even just older than me, because I'm one of the elders in this church, I'm 35. If you're 36, you know better than to say, you know what? Oh, guess what? I don't have to submit to the elders because I'm older than most of the elders. Well, you should know better than that to think that way. And, and I'll prove it because there's many other passages that have no age uh, tied to them when it comes to submitting to, to leaders in Christ's church, like Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There's no age attached to that one. So don't you 36 or 37-year-olds say, you know what, I don't have to follow your leadership passionately because I'm older. And that passage just says the younger ones, all right? I love it too because Scripture deals with both sides. Hebrews 13, 17. Hey, you need to submit to the, the leaders in the church, the, the elders. You need to do that. And then there's these other passages, like in 1 Peter. Hey, elders who are leading, who are called a shepherd, who, are, who have been given an authority by God for the good of others, make sure you're not domineering. Make sure you're doing this willingly and eagerly. God cares for every one of us, whatever our position or role is in the church. But why does Peter give specific instructions to those who are younger in this passage? Here's what I think. Because those who are young are often the most likely to struggle with submitting to their elders, right? Parent-child relationship, what's that stereotypical, stero, stereotypically like? The children rebel against the parents. That's the stereotype, isn't it? Young people rebel against authority. And there's this cycle that the young people rebel against the older people, and then the young people get old, and then the next generation of young people rebel against the older people who used to be young, and the cycle just keeps on going and going and going. But then scripture says, not so in the church. That's not the cycle. That's not the pattern. That's, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how young people have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit by God's sovereign grace. That's not how they are to respond to their leaders. And so Peter reminds the group in this passage that is most prone to struggle with submitting to be subject to the elders. But here's the reality. I think, and especially in this culture, it's not just the young people. We've been, we've been breathing in the air of nobody can tell me what to do for years and years. The older people too. No, nobody can tell me what to do. It's, it's part of our American blood, right? We're independent. No, no, we're, we're our own captains. We're our own shepherds, our own leaders, nobody. And so church membership is on the decline. 
Anytime we teach and talk about it, people say, you're being legalistic, you're being rude. Why? That's because that's the air we've been breathing. And so we need the word of God to correct that thinking. No, authority is not always bad. When it's misused, it's bad. But when it's used according to the scripture, it's good and we need it. We all need authority over us. And ultimately, we all are under authority, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's king. And so in relationships, whether it's at home or in in the workplace or at school, God puts authority over us, and the same is true in the church. And yet, because we have the ability, we think, to kind of get out of that in the church, we're unwilling to submit. So it's not just the younger people anymore. It's everybody, all of us, me included. I found it difficult. I, I found it difficult at times to submit to the elders before I was an elder. And yet it was so good. So often, even if if I was partially right, a lot of times I was wrong or it was the wrong time. And so Pastor Dave would say, that's a wonderful idea. Do that in five years. (laughs) Okay. This this person needs to be corrected. Yes, but do it with grace and love. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. We need authority, whether it's it's children needing the authority of their parents, it's it's, uh, employees needing the authority of their boss, or church members needing the authority of the elders. And for elders to to shepherd God's flock and for church members to submit to the elders, here's what's required, humility. And so Peter calls the entire church, elders and members included, everybody, to be clothed with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humility is the essential ingredient in all healthy church relationships. We cannot do this thing. We cannot accomplish the mission, church, if we are not humble towards one another. It won't happen. We're going to fail. We're going to sin against God. We're going to sin against one another, and the mission won't be accomplished. We're not going to glorify God. We're not going to proclaim the gospel. We're not going to make disciples. We're not going to treasure Christ above all because we're too busy fighting amongst ourselves. And so we, we, need, we need to be clothed with humility, extending grace towards one another. It doesn't mean that, that an elder won't be wrong, that I won't be wrong, or you won't be wrong, but it means that we're committed to extending grace to each other, talking through things, loving each other, forgiving each other quickly as soon as we can, working through things, not just taking our ball and leaving as soon as things don't go our way. No, that's not the picture that we find in scripture of the church and how we function. We're to be clothed with humility. Or as New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner puts it in his commentary on 1 Peter Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Church, if we clothe ourselves with humility, life together won't always be easy, but we will have greater joy together. We will love each other more, and we will better accomplish our church's mission together. With this passage in mind, as one of the elders of this church, I I want to acknowledge my desire to grow as one of the shepherds of this church. I read this passage, and and I'm convinced of this this truth when it comes to preparing to preach. That passage should be preached to myself first before I preach it to you. I need to work through, and I need to wrestle with, and I need to apply it to my own life. And so doing that, I need to say, I want to grow in these areas. And I'm convinced, and I believe that all the the other elders would say the same thing. So here's, here's what we want. Pray for us. Continue to pray for all the other people you're praying for and, and pray, our prayer, uh, praying for us is, is not more important than praying for anybody else. But pray for us that we would grow as, as shepherds. We want to shepherd you better. And also pray that God would raise up many more godly, faithful, and qualified men in this church and in other churches to serve as under shepherds in Christ's church. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for being our good shepherd and for how you lead and how you feed and how you guide us through your word and how you use faithful, though imperfect, under shepherds in your church to do word ministry for our good. We pray that we would be clothed with humility towards one another. We pray for the elders of this church, that we would be faithful, godly men committed to shepherding your flock, your flock, for you and like you. We pray for all the leaders in this church that you would increase our numbers and that we would be a church full of members that are clothed in humility, elders that are clothed in humility. Lord, make us a stronger, healthier church, not for our glory, but for your glory and for our joy together in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.